Romans uh, 12.2, make up your mindset. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his commentary on the book of Romans, made the following summary observation about verse 2 of chapter 12. I think it's a great introduction because it summarizes where we're going. He said this, in order to understand all that is meant, it's necessary for us to take two words from our text, place them besides a third word, which is to be found in the eighth chapter of Romans. The three words have this in common in English. They are all based on our word form, although in the original Greek, they are quite different from each other. In Romans 8:29, we were told that God's purpose in saving us was that we might be conformed into the image of his son. Here in Romans 12:2, we are told that we are not to be conformed to this age, but that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. To put the words in their spiritual order, we must recognize that we are to turn away from our past, not being conformed to this present age, that we are transformed as God makes us like the Lord Jesus Christ, conforming us to the image of his dear son, and that all of this will come to maturity when he returns for us. Now, with that in mind as kind of a groundwork, let's take this amazing verse one phrase at a time. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, we need first to know what is meant by world. That would seem to be a great place to start. And a better translation choice, as is in some of your Bibles, is the word age. But then what is an age? Well, the Germans have a word which best captures what is meant by this word age. It's the word zeitgeist. It means the spirit of the times or the spirit of the age. Here's something important. If I think zeitgeist or the spirit of the age applies only to the age in which I live, only my lifetime and my culture and the fads and the fashions possible today, then I'm not thinking broad enough. The age that the Bible is talking about is at least the entire time we call the church age, it is called in Galatians 1.4, this present evil age. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is referred to as the God of this age. And then in Ephesians 6.12, his demons are referred to as rulers of this age. This age then means a way of living that does not include Jesus Christ, but does embrace values more typical of the devil and his demons. To put it in strictly biblical language, the age ruled by the devil values the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's its value system. As to the word conformed, Kenneth Wiest was an outstanding Greek scholar. He said of this word that it meant the act of an individual assuming an outward expression that does not come from within him, nor is it representative of his inner heart life. It assumes that you've been regenerated, you've been saved by Jesus Christ, and you should therefore express this new inner heart life in all the attitudes and activities of your everyday life, rather than expressing the former values you embraced that belong to this present evil age. And so those of you who are saved later in life, you, you immediately identify with this. It, you know, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols. One minute you were going in one direction, 
Maybe you were caught up in some kind of a habit or a hobby or something, uh, but you definitely had values that were more akin to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And then Jesus Christ saved you. you. You received the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, you were born again. And the next thing you know, you're in a completely different direction, 180 degrees different from where you were going, and you had an entirely new value system. Even though you didn't understand really very much about the Christian life, a dramatic change took place in your heart, and you were expressing a new direction. Now, when it says, do not be conformed, it means stop being conformed. It's a definite possibility that after you've been regenerated and have a new inner heart life, you can still choose the values of this present evil age and go on being conformed by them. There is such a thing, sadly, in our lives and around us as the carnal Christian, the Christian who is given to the flesh. It's easy to see you've chosen this present evil age when and if your actions are definitely evil or fleshly. If I am in direct disobedience to the revealed Word of God, if I am involved in ongoing behavior that is clearly identified as sin in the Bible, then it's plain that I am being conformed to this world. It's not so easy to see you've chosen this present evil age when there is no obvious disobedience uh, or sin. We live, for example, in a capitalist society, and we want to. It's great. There's no reason in the Bible why you shouldn't possess a fortune, provided you've gained it honestly. And so we're not against wealth. Uh, we don't believe in voluntary poverty. There are, however, many warnings to the wealthy. It's not good to pursue fortune for its own sake as something to be desired, rather than as simply a byproduct of living for the Lord and serving Him. And so there's really two different ways that you can approach uh, money or wealth or fortune or treasure, whatever you want to call it. But sometimes it, it, it's very subtle uh, when you are a Christian, you might think you're doing something spiritual when in reality you're following a fleshly value. A wealthy Christian, therefore, may be so because God has chosen to bless him, or he may be so because he has put wealth as his goal. In other words, God may be transforming him, and in the process, he just happens to be wealthy, or the individual may be conforming to this present evil age, accruing wealth for its own sake, feeling secure, and thereby assuming an outward expression that does not come from within him, nor is it representative of the inner heart life. Uh, and, and so it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a knife's edge that you walk on. You know, you, there's, it's obvious if somebody is in sin and you say, well, hey, this is something that is spelled out. It's clearly sin in the Bible. You're in it. Although that's getting, even now, that's getting tougher and tougher when you read something to people and say, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really in sin, even though the Bible says I'm in sin. But, but usually Christians can agree, hey, these things are sinful. But there's a whole area of our lives where we have to be careful, where we think, hey, what is my real, what do I really value? And, and we could take fortune or fame or power or uh, passion or pleasure, we would say. And in any of those areas, we have to be careful because we can adopt the values of the world 
uh, without really sinning. And in the area of wealth, we can think, man, I have to accrue as much wealth as possible. I have to get, I have to do this and get this job and I have to have this retirement and I have to get this level and all because this, after all, this is the frugal thing to do. And, you know, the Bible teaches all this about money and, you know, and so I'm just really doing what God wants me to do. And, and maybe you are and maybe you're not because we have to judge our motives. What, what, am I really just afraid Am I afraid to trust the Lord? So let's say I'm following all these financial principles, and then the Lord comes to me and he says, Gene, I think you're like the rich young ruler. You've got way too many things. You did a great job here. You've got a great house and a great car, and you've got a great job and a great retirement. I want you to give all of that up now and follow me into some other thing. Well, Lord, I just really don't think that's wise. And... We wouldn't usually think that's wise. And we would counsel our friends, oh, no, you don't need to do that. It's okay. And so it's, it's kind of, it's interesting to really think about this. So often we're drawn to, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not in sin. But what, is my, what do I really value? What, what am I valuing in my life? No suggestions, uh, or excuse me, similar arguments, as I said, could be made regarding fame and power and pleasure. There is a spirit of this evil age that promotes fortune and fame, power and pleasure as worthy in and of themselves. And then there is the example of Jesus Christ who showed us what real fortune and fame and power and pleasure really are. Uh, and so there's always that tension as the world is seeking to conform us and God is working to transform us. Now, no suggestions are made here as to exactly how you might determine these subtle but serious differences. That's because the words themselves are powerful. Do you ever, do you ever forget that the Bible is, is just, it's inspired and it's powerful? I mean, a lot of times, I'm a very, I like to think I'm a very analytical person. I, maybe I'm not. You know, you think things about yourself that just aren't true. And, and, uh, but I like to think I'm kind of analytical and I think things through. Uh, and so when I get to the, a point like this, I think, okay, Lord, what are the three steps, the 12 steps, the 17 steps, the five examples of exactly how I am to do this? And there's really no suggestion about here. And, and, and that's because I have to remember that God says, my word is powerful. I'm telling you this, and you can receive it and judge yourself by it. James said, encountering the word of God like we're doing tonight or in our reading of it or listening to it on the radio or wherever, he said, that's like looking into a mirror. You can and do see what is reflected there. Mirror is no good if you can't see anything in it, right? And so most of you have at least one mirror. Some of you have too many mirrors. But, you know, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you want to have a good reflection of yourself, and you can see what's reflected there. If I get up in the morning and I think, huh, what happened to, you know, if, if Pam takes down all the mirrors, I'm going to have a hard time, shaving especially. But, you know, I'm going to be cut and not know it. And, and so I look into the mirror, and I definitely see what's there. And so James said the Word of God, it's a mirror. And so you definitely see yourself reflected there, but then it's up to you whether you walk away with your hair uncombed and food between your teeth or if you walk away looking more like Jesus. That's the way to approach it. So when I come to church or when I come to the Word or when I listen to the Word, I think, Lord, your Word is powerful. I don't need to ask how to do these things. I need to believe that I can do these things. You wouldn't be telling me them if it was not possible to do. You're showing me something so that I can see how I look in the mirror of your Word. And so 
God doesn't always give us pointers because he gives us his power. In verse 12, or verse 2, excuse me, uh, as we go on, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Keep on being transformed is the idea. It's a continual process by which God is changing you from glory to glory, as it says elsewhere, into the image of his son. And so God saves you, and he says, now begins a process of transformation from one glory to the next as I make you, mold you, shape you more into the image of Jesus Christ until the day you awaken in heaven in his full likeness. Following so close on the heels of saying, stop being conformed, but keep on being transformed, that tells us it's usually one or the other. The minute I get saved and have a new inner heart life, God starts transforming me. If I keep allowing myself to be conformed to this age, that transformation grinds to a halt. I might put on a good Christian front, but it's all flesh and no spirit. I can't be conformed to the world and be being transformed by God at the same time. It doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. Transformed is where we get our word, of course, metamorphosis. I was thinking about this. The Christian life is as much more beautiful and graceful from the life of a non-Christian as is a butterfly from a caterpillar. That's one of the things that you get out of that word metamorphosis. It's like, oh, wow, I've, I'm being transformed. The Christian life then is like a butterfly. The non-Christian life is like a caterpillar. Now, some people like caterpillars. They have their place. They're nasty, ugly, weird things, and, and, and they're, they're, they're supposed to become butterflies, which are beautiful. Now, you and my Christian life, we might not seem that dramatically different from non-Christians. Uh, you know, you might get a lineup and say, I want you to pick out the Christian and the non-Christian. You might not, it's not as though one looks like a butterfly and the other one looks like a caterpillar. Although, you know, it's funny, I was thinking this the other day. A lot of times you can pick out Christians. Have you ever noticed that? The other day I, was, I met with, uh, there's a, Corcoran Police Department has a new chaplain, and the chief down there asked me if I would meet with him and give him some chaplain pointers. And uh, so I thought, well, that's, sure, no problem. So I, was, I went and said we'd meet at Panera, and I was out Panera. And, you know, these different people were walking by. We never met each other, didn't have any code or anything, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, that's not him. Now yeah, that that's, that's not him. Maybe, no, that's not him. And then all of a sudden I saw a guy, that's him. I, I just, and I don't know why. He just, I thought, that guy, that guy looks like a Christian. There's just something about him. He didn't say the same about me, so I don't know what <laughs> exactly that means. But, and so our, our life may not actually look, you know, that much different on the surface. But remember, though, God is transforming us to be conformed into the image, ultimately, of Jesus. His life most definitely stands apart. And we are headed for that likeness. Again, we'd appeal to Jesus. His life as a man, the God-man, the sum total of his life on earth, was and is the most beautiful life ever lived. You realize that, of course, right? I mean, there's no doubt about that in your mind. Jesus Christ was the ultimate, consummate man. He was the God-man, fully God, fully human. But if you want to know what it is to be a man, to be a human being then Jesus Christ is, is the life that you want to look at. There's no life more beautiful, more meaningful, more purposeful 
than the life of Jesus Christ. There's no more butterfly than the Lord, I guess is what you would say in kind of a weird way. He was in perfect submission to God his entire life from the womb, in perfect submission to God. And he accomplished the greatest mission any human being ever accomplished. He went to the cross, gave his life freely for the sins of the world, took his life up again, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. It's the most amazing mission, the greatest purpose of any human being that ever lived. And so I may not look much like a butterfly tonight, but that's the image that the Lord is trying to conform me into. He says, Gene, you're or transform me into so that I will conform to the image. He says, Gene, I'm, I'm, I'm changing you, and one day you will awake in that likeness. Along the way, we get to experience some things, you know, in serving the Lord that are sort of like what Jesus did as little Christians, as we minister one to another and spread that beauty throughout our world. If I can even in some small way reveal that life to another person, I am indeed blessed. Now, we are to go on being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's my renewing of our minds gesture. So anytime I do that from now on, you'll know that that's what I mean. Uh, Before we talk about exactly what this means, note that this inward change produces an outward change. I live inside out as a believer, or at least I should. God's not interested in outward form and certainly not with hypocrisy. Jesus must reign in my heart. Then my life will express his rule in my conduct and habits. Here's another way of looking at it. Nonconformity to certain things in the world is not enough to transform me. In fact, it, nothing I don't do transforms me. And this is something we agree with, but then uh, Christians of all flavors think there are a whole bunch of things that I don't do, and that makes me more spiritual. That's not ever true. God isn't care, he, he doesn't care what you do or don't do per se. You are transformed uh, by not by nonconformity. Uh, that's why go, becoming a monk or a nun or going into a convent or a monastery, it, it can't make you more spiritual because it's all outward and you can be just as wicked inside. The big question then is how is my mind being renewed? Well, we have some help in answering that question and this isn't the first time In Romans, Paul has mentioned our minds in a significant way. Back in Romans 8, verse 5, he said this, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Flesh versus Spirit certainly is a part of conformed being transformed. If I am being conformed to this present evil age, I'm living according to the flesh. If I'm being transformed, I'm living according to the Spirit. This present evil age run by the devil and his demons is actively trying to get me conformed. One translation even says, stop being pressed into the world's mold. That's what the devil wants to do, press all of us into a mold of his creation. God has his own mold to make me more like Jesus until the day I awaken his likeness. In the midst of all this molding and, uh, and God's desire to transform us, you and I decide where we are going to set our minds. That seems to be the action that we have in this. 
God is the one transforming us. It's done by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We can't transform ourselves. He who began the good work, he performs it. Having begun in the spirit, you don't continue in the flesh. But it's not like you're totally passive because Paul has said earlier in Romans, and he says it again, you need to set your mind. Previously, it was set on this present evil age. It was set by the values of sin and selfishness. If we aren't careful, we default back to that worldly mindset. How many times have you in sincerity thought, Lord, I thought I was done with that? And that because you've fallen back into some habit, some anger, some way of thinking, and, and it just, it, it's discouraging. Don't you get discouraged? I mean, the Lord, he forgives you and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and, and you know, lead you on into righteousness and all of that. But it's discouraging, you know, because you default back. You get pushed to a certain point. There's, I'm not making an excuse. And then you find that there was a default position. And it is yelling and screaming and being angry or whatever it might be for you. There is a default position. Or we can set our mind on the things of the Spirit. So there's a cooperation in the renewing of our minds. The Holy Spirit is the only agent who can renew our minds, but we set them on the things of the Spirit in order for his work to be fruitful. That's why we say our mind has what we call a mindset. Our mind can be set first by what we choose to think about. One famous verse, I remember my pastor in San Bernardino used to say you should put this on your television set. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. And so Paul seemed to think, in Philippians at least, that you could uh, set your mind on certain things. You could guide your thinking and it should be on things that are noble and pure and all of that. And so what we think about, that's an important way we set our mind, but so is how we think about things. For example, I often find myself in a trial, don't you? If you don't, you will. You're often going to find yourself in a trial. There are at least two ways you can think about your trials. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Peter says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning a fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But he says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you'll be glad with exceeding joy. I can think it's strange that I'm in a trial, that I'm suffering, that I am being persecuted. Or, Peter says, I can rejoice. James said, count it all joy when you're in a various trial, right? And so there's a, there's a decision to be made. There's a mindset to be adopted. Trial. At first, it knocks you over. It knocks you down. It's like, what's going on? I don't like this and stuff. And, and then you remember, oh, I, this isn't strange at all. This is to be expected. And in fact, it's something to be rejoicing over because why? God is working in it and through it to conform me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's up to you and me how we're going to think about the trial, how I choose to think Coupled with what I think about, those are two powerful ways I set my mind. The Bible tells me really how I ought to think about everything, and it's different from what I used to think before I was a Christian. It's different from the way a non-believer thinks. I mean, it's obvious you have a whole different value system as a believer. You value things like humility 
and uh, service and uh, meekness and all of those kinds of things that really are not the values of the world. Any action movie, forgetting Philippians 4.8 for a minute, any action movie worth its salt, we've talked about this before, depends upon the hero absolutely tearing somebody to shreds, ripping them because they deserve it. And you're like, man, I wish I could do that. And there's a, there's a bent in us like that. And then every once in a while, you know, a movie like uh, will come along that has a Christian value. <laughs> Gene shaking his head because I can't think of the name of the movie. <laughs> Chariots of Fire. A movie like Chariots of Fire will come along. Where the guy, the hero is just like, he's almost an anti-hero. He's sitting there saying, I am not going to. Now, we would, it's funny about that. We would disagree with him. You don't, you run on the Sabbath. There is no Christian Sabbath. Run whenever you want. But he had the conviction that the Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. He said, there's nothing you can do to get me to run on, on the Sabbath. I don't, the whole weight of the British Empire can come against me and I am not going to run. I love that. I could watch that one scene over and over again where he's being, you know, plied by the, the British royalty. And he, he thinks they're, you know, they're having a decent conversation. But in reality, you know, they're there to force him to run for king and country. And, and he said, I, I put God first. And you think, wow, I love this anti-hero. But even in that movie with the anti-hero, he's still a hero hero, right? He still wins the race, gets the gold medal and stuff. They don't make too much about him dying in the mission field and all that. So there's that bent in us. I mean, there, there are, you know, sometimes we break through and we think, yeah, this is something to value. This is a value. Laying down your life for the Lord, uh, not taking it up for yourself. And so there's very different values. It's up to you and me. It's right here that so many lives are made shipwrecked because we don't think we can think about things differently. We just let our minds go. We think, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to think on things that are lovely, and I, I don't want to think that this is, you know, for God, my good and God's glory. I, I'm just, this is weird. And it's a, I'll, I want to get out of this, and then I'll start thinking that way again. And it's like people, they, they set their mind, they, it's, it's as if, we would say they're setting their minds on the world's values. They would say they have stopped their mind for a while and that they're going to jump over into a whole new area where they can have a different mindset. And so it's sad. So we finish the verse. It says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word prove is the action word in this last phrase. One of its possible meanings is to approve. Its opposite, obviously, is to disapprove. And so you find yourself in some situation, some circumstance. In fact, think of yourself right now in the various circumstances you are in. Do you approve of the circumstances that you find yourself in? Or do you disapprove of them, and are you trying to get out of them? Are you trying to change them? Here's what I think Paul was saying. Most likely, and this is a huge generalization. You're going to have to receive it as a generalization and, and be a good Berean and search it out in your own life. But most likely, your circumstances, unless you are in sin, they are God's perfect will for you. They may be adverse. They may involve suffering. But that doesn't mean they are not God's perfect will for you. 
And so most, most of the time, Christians, they're in a situation, they're in a circumstance, and, and unless they're in sin, unless they are living in sin, I think you can say, this is, you know, God is working in my life. And so this is God's perfect will for me right now. In fact, your circumstances are good and they're acceptable, meaning they are for your ultimate good, for God to go on transforming you, and they should therefore be acceptable, meaning well-pleasing, since they are a means to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. If you set your mind properly, then you will approve of God's perfect will, and he can go about the important business of transforming you. And so, I'm in a circum- I'm, I'm, I'm in my life. This is my life. And, and God says, yeah, I, you know, this is, this is my will for your life. And I can approve of it. I can disapprove of it. If I approve of it, I can, I, I can know that it is good and acceptable. It's good because God intends to use it to mold me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's acceptable because that's what I really want anyway. If you disapprove then you set your mind on lesser values and you become set on abandoning your circumstances, even to the point of disobeying a clear directive in God's word. I'll close with a little homespun analogy. If you use devices that utilize Bluetooth technology, you know that they usually come with a a preset pass key. Afterwards, you should change the pass key for security purposes. And so, you know, you'll, you'll go to pair your device and you'll have to do, usually it's, you know, one, two, three, four, zero, 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 or something like that. And, and then it'll pair with your device and then they want you to change that uh, and have your own code. Now, as a human being, you were preset to be conformed to this world. You came out preset as a sinner, born in sin, dead in trespasses and sin, to be pressed and shaped and molded into the image of the world. And if you look back on your pre-Christian existence, you think, man, I, just, I got just pressed all over the place by the devil. Then God saves you and he resets you to be transformed in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so the exhortation is, don't allow yourself to be reset to the default settings. You don't want to go back to your default setting that you came out with. It didn't do anything for you before. Uh, It can't do anything for you now. You want to keep on being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.